0: Miracy. Sometimes I just try to make sure my clients are aware of the impact of those behaviors. You know, basically by simply saying, I'm here to create the best experience for you, but the way in which you're engaging with me right now is making it very difficult for me to be as generous as I want to be with
1: my energy and my time. As a coach, you may have to face entitled clients who believe the world revolves around them, making it challenging to manage their unrealistic expectations. It's a skill every coach should possess to de-escalate any situation effectively, but that's not all. As a coach, you must also keep your emotions in check when dealing with entitled clients' difficult behaviors. I'm Melinda Cohen, and you're listening to Just Between Coaches. I run a business called The Coaches Console, and we're proud to have helped tens of thousands of coaches create profitable and thriving businesses. This is a podcast where we answer burning questions that newer coaches would love to ask a more experienced coach. In this episode, we'll discuss entitled clients. We'll cover what that means and how demanding, difficult, and even abusive it can be, making it challenging for coaches to maintain a professional relationship with them. And with me today is a returning guest, I've invited Marissa Murray to the show. Marissa is a leadership development expert and the CEO of Leaderly International, an organization dedicated to helping executives become better leaders. She's the author of two Amazon best-selling leadership development books, Work Smart and Iterate. Welcome, Marissa. Thank you. Nice to be here. I am so happy to have you back on the show. And for our listeners that haven't heard your previous episode where we talked about judgment, would you mind just sharing a little bit of your background?
0: Oh, absolutely. So going back to the beginning of my career, I was an engineer by training. I have a very analytical mind and worked as an engineer for a while, then did my MBA. And after my MBA, I was a management consultant for many years So I did a lot of transformation of organizations and optimizations. And then nine years ago now, I decided to start my company, Leaderly, focusing on uh, leadership development
1: and executive coaching. So that's a little bit about me. So let's dive into this topic, because this is kind of a tricky one. I know in our world, when we're teaching them, we call, uh, we actually refer to this as a villain, where it's described as special Sylvie right, that talks about I'm different, I've got different problems than most, nobody understands me since I'm different. How would you define entitlement in this situation? Like there's many angles to it, but how would you describe it?
0: Yeah, you know, entitlement is one of what I call the sneakiest (laughs) sabotage, sabotaging emotion. So there's kind of two, I'll just tell you both. Entitlement is very sneaky and shame is very sneaky. And when I mean sneaky, I mean they can kind of operate sort of underneath our consciousness and really keep us from fully engaging in our own lives. So entitlement is just that that attitude that things going to be bestowed on you without effort or that you deserve something or that you should have something or that something should be easier for you. It's actually a, a really yucky emotion because I actually think entitlement really kills joy. You know, it, it's like if you think about, uh, say, a birthday a little girl on her birthday or a little boy on his birthday, and you give them a present and they're not completely happy with what they get and they and they just sort of throw it on the ground, you know, that they're entitled to sort of having a perfect birthday. It's that ugly characteristic where instead of just, you know, meeting the world where we're at, engaging in the world and then feeling joyful for the things that we have, uh,
1: entitlement is just the absolute opposite of that it's an emotion right it's it's a sneaky emotion it's all the coaches that we've worked with right we identify this as a villain not that it has to be a label that's always there cuz like you said a lot of times it's underneath our consciousness and people don't even realize that it's going on and so i just want to talk about what are some of those other maybe some of the actions that we might be seeing our clients doing or some words we might be hearing them saying or Interactions that might be happening. And when we're thinking, wait a minute, is that what's going on here? Is entitlement showing up? And how do I navigate that? So, how would, what are some of those other actions or things that might be indicators of it?
0: Yeah, I think that one of the giveaways is when people start to sound kind of victimized, like good things don't happen to them or other people always get things more easily. So, when people start to sound really disempowered, like they don't have access to, their resources. Like we know as coaches, we're trying to help them find their resources. The other is that they really expect sort of special treatment. And third might be that they start making excuses for not showing up for themselves. Those are probably three different ways that you can probably bet that there's a little bit of entitlement in the background.
1: Yeah. One of the things that we hear is, um, yeah, buts. They are never ending. It doesn't matter what the situation is with the conversation that's happening, how the conversation is going, what the coaching that's happening in, inside the conversation. It's always a, well, yeah, but with me, it's like this, or with my experience, and and they use that difference that they're seeing. Uh, what I find is they're using it as a way to prevent them from moving forward. Absolutely. That it's actually, it's more of a protective, defensive mechanism almost. Not that people will admit it readily, but eventually through the coaching and the transparent conversations, one can get to that point. But until they recognize it, it's always, it's like the forever yeah buts. They just don't end. And another thing that I find is that it creates a sense of isolation. So I want to talk about that for a second. How is that serving people when they're being taken over by this or sabotaged by this entitlement kind of experience. Let's talk about isolation for a second.
0: Sure. The studying I've been doing in in neuroscience in particular, I'm always really interested in the brain's soothing mechanisms. There are certain activities that can happen in the brain to try self-soothing. So one of them is procrastination. I learned that procrastination is actually a soothing mechanism. Your brain is trying to help you avoid something that you think is hard. And I think isolation is also a self-soothing mechanism, meaning the brain thinks that by being exposed to the world, you're getting upset or hurt in some way and you need to kind of isolate. How it links to entitlement is that we start to separate ourselves from others because we feel alienated or hard done by in comparison to others. And so we kind of think we're special and we need to isolate ourselves. And it's really just because we're facing a challenge, right? It's kind of one of those things where we can either get empowered and energized and excited about the challenge, or we can really let that challenge seem like this burden that we shouldn't have to do and kind of want to crawl out of the covers and hide.
1: Now, from a coach's perspective, if we're working with clients And we are noticing that pattern. I'll just call it the forever yeah buts, right? Those excuses. They're expecting that special treatment. Oh, well, I know this worked for everybody else that you've worked with, but my situation's different and therefore something else has to happen. When that's happening with our clients, how do we begin to even bring it up? I know when I've experienced, it's easy to spot. It's not as easy to actually address it. When do you know it's time to actually address that or not? Sometimes you hear it as
0: early as in a fit meeting, you know, or just an introductory meeting. People are coming to coaching and they're not in the most empowered place, perhaps, right? And what I try to do is as soon as I hear it, I try to teach them a little bit about how the algorithm might be running in their brain. And what I mean by that is I try to remind them that our brain is kind of lazy. It takes up a lot of energy for the body. And so it's always trying to kind of energy optimize when people are feeling like they're overwhelmed from a challenge, um, it's kind of just their brain putting up a fight to learning something new, to trying something new, to exploring a different way to think about or do something. And so I kind of try to normalize it. I say, you know, I hear you. It sounds like it should be easier. But you know what? That's just your brain kind of kicking up its little bit of resistance around building a new neural pathway, which once you do, you're going to have a new skill set and you're going to be able to move towards your aspirations and goals that you've laid out, right? So trying to get them to sort of expect there's going to be a little bit about this kickback and to just see it as that as they start to actually make some really big differences and changes in their, in their neural pathways of the mind.
1: Once you bring it up, often you have to remind clients in a very gentle way when that pattern is still there. And And I want to bring out something that you said just a moment ago, because I think it's so important. You bring this up often very early on in that initial conversation. Uh, I think you called it a fit conversation. Some people call it sample sessions, that discovery consultation, whatever it is, those early conversations. And just as a reminder that, you know, when we find our ideal clients and they're ready to work with us, they're living on what I call pain island. They are immersed in their challenges They are struggling. They're in the land of overwhelm. They are frustrated. They've often hit that enough is enough. That's a messy, yucky place where we meet our ideal clients. And so I find that I have to first and foremost have massive compassion and remember that they're in that land of hot mess, just funkiness, and they are not their best selves because of it. And we can't take it personally. We can't transfer that to us, but just hold that space of massive compassion for how hard that struggle is and how hard the overwhelm and the frustration is that they've been dealing with and approach it first from that perspective so that we can honor and acknowledge where they are and the courage that it's taken to even show up and have this conversation because the vast majority of the world isn't even willing to do that much. Absolutely.
0: And I think the compassion is absolutely the key. One of the things that's really difficult is. You can't uh, feed the monster. So if somebody is already feeling a little bit hard done by or a little bit victimized, if you begin to set a very harsh tone or try to call them on, you know, what is an unhelpful thought pattern, but if you try to call it out, that's going to feed the monster because they're going to feel even more victimized and even more not seen and heard. So you do absolutely have to have a tremendous amount of compassion But also see them as big people too, like recognize that they have had sufficient empowerment to come to the table to have this discussion and try to unpack the beliefs that are probably a little bit false and need some updating.
1: Are there things that coaches can do early on to help set appropriate boundaries with our clients, entitled or not, but especially with those that we begin to sense are entitled? What are some of those boundaries that we can put in place?
0: Well, it's interesting because sometimes I think the analogy of a coach is always really helpful for setting some of these expectations. If you think about just asking somebody that has played sports in their time and ask them about their coach when they were young, like, what did your coach do? You know, they gave you suggestions in terms of exercises to do. They put you in challenging situations. They told you how to do repetitive reps to build skill sets. Sometimes you can get a client to kind of remember, say, an athletic experience and then make some really nice parallels between what your role of a coach is. You know, my role as a coach is to continually, um, it's yes, to energize you, yes, to cheerlead you, but also to push you. I think what's important is that there's an expectation that that's what they're coming for and that they want that. And if they don't want that, then maybe they're not ready for coaching. Coaching works because they're in active engagement with the process. It doesn't work without them. I like to co-create my experiences with my clients and constantly calibrate that with them around how are things progressing for them and what do they need more differently from me? Because, you know, we can turn the table around and sort of realize that we're all at risk of feeling entitled, right? Even the coach, we might feel entitled to have an easier client or entitled to have, you know, a more compliant client. (laughs) So we have to watch ourselves too and make sure that the relationship continues to be very, very productive for the coachee and also um, able for the coach to do what they do best, which is
1: to nudge them forward into, into space where they haven't been before. Now, speaking of, you know, as the coach, like how can coaches manage their own emotions when this kind of client shows up? How do we handle it ourselves?
0: Yeah, I can just think about a couple of situations where I really had to manage my expectation on the pacing of the client. So what I discovered was it just for me, the client was moving very, very slowly. And I just felt a little frustrated by what felt like a lack of engagement. Uh, and I had to just keep checking myself because she was making progress and she was happy with the progress she was making. So I had to kind of get out of her way of her process because coaching is a nonlinear thing. Coaching is often kind of logarithmic. I find where at the beginning it can be quite slow and then it can really take a turn for, you know, incredible transformation later in a program, for instance, in a, in a six to eight month program. And so I think as coaches, we have to just really be careful with understanding what is serving the client and what is the evidence from the client in terms of their progress and stay out of judging that.
1: I know when I get into that situation and I'm faced with that entitled client or that person in my audience that's showing up that way, after I remember massive compassion, usually when I get myself in that space and I remember the journey that they're experiencing, that right there will melt any kind of funkiness inside of me so I can be really present. Mm -hmm. Um, And if not, I might actually have to call a timeout. And I've done that before where I say, you know, I just want to take a timeout on this topic. And what I'm noticing is it's one of my favorite coaching phrases because it may be right. It may be wrong. It might be right or real or true or who knows what. And I'll literally just say to the client, I want to call a timeout because I'm noticing with this topic, there's a pattern I think might be going on. And I just wanted to check in with you about it and to just do a quick check-in. And I find that for me, it helps me to not internalize stories, make stories up or make assumptions. And it really helps to keep me in check so I'm not going off the deep end somewhere, but I just get the real conversation with the client to find out what's going on. Mm -hmm.
0: I have had experiences where It's been frustrating. And I've known sort of after the call that I wasn't in the best headspace myself. And that's where you have to sort of understand how do you rebalance and how do you kind of show up the next time fresh? Um, Because you want the trajectory of coaching to always kind of move clients where they want to get to. And if you really feel like you're blocked, at some point you
1: have to ask yourself if you're the right coach for that person. Mm. How do you rebalance when that happened to you?
0: Well, I'm trying to think about like how many times this might have happened, and it's probably like two out of hundreds.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. right. Right?
0: So it's a very small number. And, uh, and even in those circumstances, one of them was kind of temporary and the other one led to us deciding to no longer work together. In the one situation where we actually decided to not move forward, the individual was very, very fragile. And coaching is not necessarily the best environment when somebody is really, really fragile. They have to be kind of ready for a change. And she kind of discovered over time that it was great. It got me, it got me moving, but I need a slower pace. Like this isn't the right thing for me. Right. And so we kind of mutually agreed. In the other case, I really had to work hard to help the person navigate sort of a lot of the emotions they would bring into the coaching conversation. And so I had to be very patient. You know, I believe actually, Melinda, you talked about this at one point, the what was it, your BMW drive?
1: (laughs) Yes, taking your BMW around the block, the bitch moan and whine. You got five minutes and it's going back in the garage. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So there's a little bit of that, right? The emotion that would come in. And I had to realize that during that time, things that they were saying that sounded a lot like entitlement and sounded a lot like things that were probably what I would describe as very unhelpful beliefs. I just had to let them get those out and I had to kind of not listen or not hold them accountable to those words, right? Just in the same way that you can just kind of let somebody vent for a minute. And with this client, when we got into that rhythm of understanding, like, when am I venting and when is it the real me? That really helped me too, so that we could, we could, you know, increase the percentage that it was the whole and complete person in front of me, but allow a little bit of buffer room without me trying to address the comments that I knew were kind of unhelpful and maybe at some point should have been explored, but we just couldn't just keep dwelling on them. We just had to let some of them kind of lay low while we got some quick wins in other areas.
1: Yeah, I love that. I know when it comes to situations like this or dealing with any kind of difficult client, whether it's entitlement or maybe just a difficult situation, or maybe you just didn't feel your best that day and you're like, I kind of feel a little off. Uh, I know even just a go outside, stand on my deck for two minutes, put my face to the sun, get a little bit of vitamin D, or maybe just a quick walk around my backyard. And then I'm like, okay, let's go back in. So it can be as something as simple as that to help rebalance. How do you show up next time as your best? Like you see that person's name on the calendar and you're like, oh my goodness, I've got another coaching call with them. Like how do you make (laughs) sure that doesn't happen?
0: Yeah, that used to happen to me in the early days of my coaching practice and also in the early days of a new client. Because at the beginning, it's always a little bit dicey around how you're building rapport. And also I was perhaps a little bit nervous about my abilities, right? When I first started, what I realized is that I've just had enough evidence points that I can never guess how a coaching conversation is going to go. Sometimes you go in and you think it's going to be delightful and it can be very challenging. And other times you think it's going to be really challenging and the client shows up delightful, right? And so I kind of put myself out of the business of trying to predict how any coaching conversation was going to go. I focus very much on just being present for whatever comes and doing my absolute best to serve the client in that moment. Instead of when I'd see somebody's name and have that little thought around like, oh, no, that I would be Mm -hmm. like, well, I'm not a fortune teller. Like, I actually cannot see the future and I have no way of knowing how they're going to show up. And so I would just neutralize that with that thought.
1: Now, I want to talk about something that's kind of a a tricky piece to this, because in the intro, uh, when I was talking about this episode. Sometimes when we're working with entitled clients and this can be entitled clients it can be people in your audience it can be they may not be paying members of you yet but it's still somebody that you're interacting with and that entitlement or those heavier emotions it can kind of tip over into being abusive like verbal abuse even emotional abuse and so when that starts happening like how do coaches navigate that? Well, when someone is
0: behaving really poorly, we have an immediate reaction to be much less generous, (laughs) right? In terms of what we're willing to offer them. And sometimes I just try to make sure my clients are aware of the impact of those behaviors. You know, basically by simply saying, I'm here to create the best experience for you, but the way in which you're engaging with me right now is making it very difficult for me to be as generous as I want to be with my energy and my time that is beautiful <laughs> just trying to show them that it is not in their best interest to use tactics that actually will get them much less oftentimes they may not like that they don't like that response but i find that they have to sort of ponder you know what do i really want here it's one of those questions of do i do i want to stand my ground or do i want to actually get something out of this
1: Yeah, there was a a phrase that I heard one time, I'd rather get it right than be right. I think a lot of times coaches are afraid that they'll lose a client or that they'll have to drop a client. And I think that's okay. Like sometimes it's just not the right fit. It doesn't mean that they got one over on you or that you were too forceful for them or it doesn't mean anything about either one. It's just it may just not be a good fit. And as a coach, We might have to be the ones that bring it up. I don't think we should jump to that conclusion too fast. I think there's an opportunity to navigate and work through the situation. But sometimes that is how we need to handle it. Maybe it's not a one-on-one private client situation. Maybe you're operating a group or you've got a community of people and you not only have to protect that client, yourself, but also the community. And you've got to pay attention to all of those. So it's something to be mindful of, to navigate that. Any other guidance on, on when it begins to tip over to that verbal or emotional abuse, how do you begin to navigate it?
0: Well, certainly with a group, it's really important because, you know, moods are contagious and it will have an impact on other people's experiences. And so you are As the facilitator of a beautiful experience for the group, it's your responsibility to do your best to navigate these situations. I just try really hard to remember that when people are behaving badly, they are on cortisol and we all behave badly on cortisol. (laughs) So and cortisol is contagious to your neighbor. So if I can interrupt the pattern very, very early and very quickly or, you know, I've been known to just hear the hear the negativity and then make everybody stand up and do some deep breathing and then do a round of gratitudes or reaffirm our intentions or just trying to keep the energy level, especially in a group in a really beautiful, harmonious state and, and kind of recommitting to that as often as we need to in a session. So I think that is something that's really important to navigate. Now, if you have someone, of course, that's consistently showing up And you have an option of kind of deciding that somebody isn't a fit for the activity. You may suggest that that's not exactly the perfect environment at this point, that maybe they'd be better in a one-on-one setting, or maybe this isn't, you know, the right group dynamic since they are so frustrated. I mean, oftentimes it's like, I'm noticing that this isn't really a positive experience for you. And I want this to be a positive experience for you. So what could we do more differently? Or maybe this just isn't the right experience for you you know just making sure that you have an honest dialogue about it's not fun to be on cortisol that's why i like to remind myself that you know if they're in an agitated state it's not a fun way for them to be they're like that they want relief from that as much as i want them to have relief from that
1: and as a coach it's our opportunity to put it into perspective neutralize it like you said earlier and begin to change things with them through the dialogue what advice would you give to coaches when they find themselves in this situation? Like for our listeners, a lot of them are newer coaches in the early years. What's the advice you would give them?
0: Well, I just go back to my early years. And I think that one of the things that was really difficult is you just want every client you can get your hands on in the early years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's great. You're open, you're finding, you're defining your niche probably, but you're open to just everyone who walks through your door and or through your Zoom. And I think that that's the right spirit to have, but you have to understand that there's a large variability at the beginning of who you're attracting. And over time, you'll be able to build sort of the right messaging for your ideal clients, and these difficult experiences will actually diminish as a percentage. But at the beginning, I think you just got to embrace it with all the learning that there is. I mean, when I look at some of my early clients that were probably not my ideal clients, I still learned how to do some really good work from them. I still grew a lot during that process and it was a bit of a struggle, but I still learned and, I, and, I, and I'm a better coach today because of those experiences. Don't be too hard on yourselves as it's not going perfectly. Just try and continue to show up and try to continue to emit the en- the positive energy that brought you to become a coach. Stay in your values and experiment. Experiment with different techniques. All you can do is just experiment and see what really works for your client and what works for you.
1: Mm-hmm. Constant, never-ending improvement, always yep. growing. Yeah. So let's summarize some of the things that we've talked about on this topic. I love how you kicked us off with defining entitlement and even shame as being one of the sneakiest saboteur emotions out there and how it often operates underneath our consciousness. We talked about some of the indicators and actions and behaviors that we might observe or hear from our clients. And we're like, alert, alert. I think this might be going on. We talked about how they might sound victimized, how they expect special treatment. Excuses show up a lot. The forever yeah, but." We talked about how entitlement can create a sense of isolation as a defense mechanism or that self-soothing mechanism. We even got into a little bit of what is happening inside the brain and how do we begin to address it with our clients from massive compassion to talking about what's happening in our brain, but giving perspective and helping them normalize it. I love the phrase, I hear you, it should be easier, and actually, and then having a a dialogue with them to set up what they can expect. I love when you said you can't feed the monster, one of my favorite phrases from this, where, you know, if we set a harsh tone, oftentimes that's just going to help them feel more victimized and it's just going to perpetuate that and we don't want to contribute to the behavior. We talked about how do we keep our own emotions in check and rebalance and when you see their name on the calendar, how do you show up the next time as your best self and how to really navigate and manage a lot of emotions because it is messy when we work with clients. It's supposed to be. That's the journey of transformation that we're taking them on. We went through some tips when it kind of gets more into that abusive experience and how to handle that and some advice. Marissa, is there anything else that you want to share? Any parting words for our listeners?
0: Just remember that every time we sort of expect something, it's hard to be delighted when we get it. (laughs) So it's really nice to just work really hard to reduce our own entitlement because I think entitlement kills joy. So as we all sort of embrace our clients, we work with them, we celebrate their successes, we celebrate our own growth as a coach. All of those things are just so much more beautiful and
1: nurturing through joy rather than entitlement. Beautiful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Between Coaches. And also a big thank you to Marissa for this great conversation and coming back for another episode. And I encourage you to listen to her previous episode about judgment, where she says that judgment can be even more of an issue for coaches who have been practicing for a long time. You can find out more about her at www.leaderly.com. That's Leaderly, L E A D E R L E Y.com. Marissa, thank you so much for coming to the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Melinda Cohen, and you've been listening to Just Between Coaches. Just Between Coaches is part of the Mayor CFM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Behind the Launch. Mishi Lance produced this episode. I wrote this episode together with her, and Cynthia Lamb is our supervising producer. Danny Eni is our executive producer, and Post Production was by Post Office Sound. If you want to listen to upcoming and previous great episodes on Just Between Coaches, please follow us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might be listening right now. And if you like the show, please leave us a star review. It's the best way to help us get these ideas to more people.
2: Miracy. And so the tailor, having gathered together the beautiful scraps, began to sew. He stitched and he sewed and he sewed and he stitched. And by the morning time, he had made himself a beautiful coat. Now, when he wore his coat into the market, everyone admired it so much that the tailor decided to wear the new coat everywhere. And that's what he did. He wore it and wore it and wore it until it was all worn out. Or was
0: it? In each episode of Once Upon a Business, Lisa shares a fairy, folk, or traditional tale, and then extracts rich business lessons that are applicable for entrepreneurs, coaches, and course creators.
2: Stories always take us on a journey from one place to the next. Sometimes this journey is literal, sometimes it's metaphorical, but always we find ourselves transformed. This story, The Tailor's Coat, originating from Europe, takes us through a literal transformation of the pieces of cloth and yet somehow teaches a powerful lesson. It does speak to a common entrepreneurial journey. Many of us start out working for someone else and give them everything we've got. Perhaps the tailor finally deciding to make something for himself is similar to the entrepreneurial desire to begin to create a business for ourselves. We take the scraps, the skills that we've developed, the experience that we've gained, and we launch our own business. I think it's an incredibly important skill for an entrepreneur, for anybody running a business, to be able to know that creating something out of nothing is always possible. And it's often the way forward because It's out of the scraps of what's been done before. It's out of almost the missing pieces that are not quite there that we can actually bring our creativity and bring our determination and bring our vision to create something really wonderful, really brand new and really beautiful. And then we can walk around the town with it. You know, we can be proud. We can step out and we can wear it until it's almost worn out, but not quite. To hear more of
0: Lisa's stories and learn the deep lessons they carry, make sure you subscribe to Once Upon a Business wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you every other week with a brand new episode.